Sound. Suresh, your sound. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Hello. That's how that's how all good Zoom meetings start. Sound, sound. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Indian Summer Festival. Or rather, thank you for welcoming Indian Summer Festival into your home. You're all here to hear two truly incredible human beings, Vandana Shiva and David Suzuki. We've had more than 4,000 people sign up to watch this event from US, India, Brazil, Mexico, and of course, across Canada. We're linking and speaking from many places tonight, but I just want to acknowledge that I'm located in a city currently called Vancouver, which for thousands of years has been the ancestral homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, the first peoples of this land. And by way of explanation to our faraway guests, this land is unceded, which means that this land was never surrendered, relinquished, or handed over in any way. And the natural beauty it's framed for is thanks to the stewardship of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people, who even today are among its most loving defenders. Today is also the day that just over 100 years ago, a ship called the Komagata Maru sailed up to Vancouver with 376 passengers from Punjab, India, then part of the British Empire, hoping to make a new home. Canadian immigration and Canadian courts discriminated against their fellow British subjects on the basis of race, turning them around without letting them land. And things like this, of course, are not just history, they're happening today. And in happier news, this evening marks the end of the Ramadan fast, Eid Mubarak to all celebrating. So suffice it to say, there is a lot going on. Now, just to make you nostalgic for real live events, I'm going to ask you all to take your seats, keep the aisles free, and turn your mobile phones to silent or off, unless, of course, you're watching this on your phone, in which case, please don't turn it off. But seriously, I mean, this is a difficult moment for people everywhere, and for us as a not-for-profit that works to bring people together, it's posed challenges as well as opportunities. And all of you being present here is a huge expression of support. And though this event is free to attend, some of you were able to donate to our organization or pay the price of what a ticket would have been, and we really appreciate that. And we're able to put on this event, like an uh, events like this, thanks to your support and that of a few organizations I'd like to mention. On the whole, our festival is supported by our founding partner, Simon Fraser University, and our major partners, University of British Columbia and Langara College, our emerging artist partner, RBC, and our funders, Heritage Canada, the province of British Columbia, the city of Vancouver, and Vancouver Foundation. And thanks to our media partners, CBC, Georgia Strait, and Spice Radio for spreading the word. This particular event is supported by Nature's Park Foods and the wonderful Stevens family. Before we bring our speakers on, though, let's hear some words of welcome from one of our major supporters, Professor Santa Ono, President of UBC. Professor Ono. Hello and welcome. My name is Santa Ono. I'm President of the University of British Columbia. I'm speaking to you today from the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Musqueam people. I'd also like to acknowledge that you are joining us today from many places, near and far, and acknowledge the traditional owners and caretakers of those lands. UBC has been a proud supporter of Indian Summer Festival for many years. This is our second year as a major partner. I'm delighted and honored to welcome you to this evening's conversation the virus is a wake-up call with Dr. Vandana Shiva and former faculty member and UBC honorary doctorate recipient, Dr. David Suzuki. 
I look forward to listening to the conversation between these two influential community leaders who've spent decades working to protect the environment on a global stage. This talk, The Virus is a Wake-Up Call, is a significant topic during COVID-19. This virus has made us change the way we work and live and rethink how business is conducted. At UBC, we're tackling COVID-19 from a medical angle, as well as a social and policy angle. Also, we know that change is constant. We consider ourselves a living lab, always working to reduce our environmental footprint. This reverberates in our campus operations, our research, and our student sustainability projects. We're proud of these achievements and believe that together, with leaders like Vandana Shiva and David Suzuki, universities like ours can make catalytic change towards a sustainable and just recovery. Now I'd like to turn attention to the presenting sponsors of this event. Thank you to Aran and Ratna Stevens, the co-founders of Nature's Path, for your support of this discussion today. The Stevens are an important part of the UBC community and they're my friends. They serve as trusted advisors and philanthropic supporters of the university. Before I conclude, I want to congratulate the Indian Summer Festival on their 10th anniversary. We're pleased to support the artists and creative works presented by Indian Summer Festival and the innovative way you are addressing pressing questions of the day. From all of us at the University of British Columbia, Congratulations on your 10th anniversary. Friends, please enjoy this evening's program. Thank you, Professor Ono, for those warm words and for your support. A word about the format for this evening. We'll listen to Dr. Shiva and Dr. Suzuki conversing for about 40 minutes, and we will then bring some questions from the audience to them. To ask a question, type it into the Facebook or YouTube chat channel, and we have several people monitoring that who will pass them on to me. And please don't be upset if your question doesn't get asked. It's not because it's not valid. It's just the sheer numbers we're working with here. Most of you are here because you already know who Vandana Shiva and, Dr. and David Suzuki are, but a quick refresher. Dr. Vandana Shiva is a world-renowned environmental thinker and activist, a leader in the International Forum on Globalization and of the Slow Food Movement. She's the director of Navdanya, which means nine seeds, or could also be read to mean new gift. Navdanya is a women-centered movement for the protection of biological and cultural diversity, and they have a network of seed keepers and organic producers across 22 states in India. And they've trained over 900,000 farmers in seed sovereignty, food sovereignty, and sustainable agriculture. They also have a learning center, so beautifully named Bija Vidyapit, or School of the Seed, or Earth University. Many of us met Vandana Shiva through her powerful books, Soil, Not Oil, Reclaiming the Commons, Making Peace with the Earth, and her latest, Oneness versus the 1%. I urge you to learn more about Navdanya. A link will show up in the chat channel and to support the work that they do. Dr. David Suzuki is a scientist, broadcaster, and author. He is a companion to the Order of Canada and a recipient of UNESCO's Kalinga Prize for Science. Most Canadians saw David Suzuki regularly on screens in their living rooms as host of the CBC television series, 
the nature of things. He's written a staggering 55 books, 19 of them for children, and just a few titles are shown here. In 1990, with Dr. Tara Kallis, he co-founded the David Suzuki Foundation to collaborate with Canadians from all walks of life, including government, business, to conserve our environment and find solutions that will create a sustainable Canada through science-based research, education, and policy work. Again, I urge you to learn more about the work the Foundation does, and a link will come up again in your channels. Both of them have far too many awards to name, but they do share one, the Right Livelihood Award that went to Greta Thunberg this year. It was established to honor and support courageous people solving global problems, and that is why we look to them now. A warm welcome, please, for Vandana Shiva and David Suzuki. Thank you so much to you both for your generosity in being here. Um, I'm really um, hoping to just pose a couple of questions and hang back while, while you, the two of you can converse. Um, first, I'd like to start to both of you. Where are you and, and what's going on in your broader community now? What specific place are you in? Go ahead, Vandana. Well, I'm in my hometown, my childhood uh, home. I'm in my mother's cow shed, which she gifted to me 40 years ago to start the Research Foundation for Science, Technology, and Ecology. And every day I'm grateful to my uh, guru. I'm grateful to my parents. I'm grateful to the trees because it has become an urban forest over all these years because unlike everyone else, we didn't chop down the trees. And uh, so it's a good place to be, good place to be locked up. <laughs> and I'm on uh, one of the islands uh, between Vancouver Island and the mainland of British Columbia on an island called Quadra Island. I think there are about 3,000 people that live on a very large island. It's over 30 kilometers long. Um, and we've ha been here. It was my intent to retire here when I got it 30 years ago. But my father-in-law and mother-in-law lived upstairs with us in Vancouver. Uh, and I promised them I would care for them until they died. I didn't think they'd live as long as, as they did. But by the time they finally did die at 94 or 95, uh, it was uh, too late for us to make a move here. We came here on March 13th for a long weekend with our daughters and their families. And I only brought four days worth of clothing with me. And we've been here ever since. So we do a lot of washing of, uh, of our, our clothing. But, you know, it's amazing. We heat our, uh, uh, our uh, cabin with, with wood. Uh, we draw our water from a well and we go out every day and gather oysters and clams and prawns and uh, we fish for for uh, salmon and mother earth has just been so incredibly generous we feel very very uh, fortunate to be here but of course we still depend on the global economy to to buy our our food and uh, most of our food and we need a grid to give us the electricity to charge <coughs> our car and uh, turn the lights on and let us use internet. We don't have cell phones or, or television here, but the internet gives us everything. We quite frankly are, are here and it's like, gee, we could stay here for the, till the end of the year. We're very fortunate. It's, it's actually lovely that in that way that both of you have found yourself in places where 
where you're nurtured in that way. Um, both of you have written, written recently about the, the situation with COVID-19 and the title of this talk is because in some ways, both of you have said it's a wake up call. What cracks do you think the virus has highlighted? What does it make us realize about ourselves and the world we've built? And at this point, I'll just leave and let you take that away. Again, I, go ahead. Uh, um, I think the first crack for me that the virus is exposed is in this model of limitless growth, um, which is based on limitless greed and limitless extraction. And therefore, ever since the days of the early conquest, 500 years ago, treating limits as an obstruction that must be removed, whether they be planetary limits or they be ecosystem limits or they be species limits. After all, of the 300, New infectious diseases. Most have come from the forest where an ecosystem has been invaded. And in those ecosystems are people, are animals. And these viruses are not deadly in the forest, but they become deadly when we drive these viruses out of the forest. Uh, the second thing it has definitely done is show a crack in the industrial food system. Not just because the big supply chains collapsed. In India, it's only, you know, the Navania communities were able to feed themselves. But, the, you know, the over 30 years of, we've been told grow pot, not marijuana, but potato, onion, tomato. I grow food, import the food. And people who just run tomato and who just run potato for Pepsi, nothing, nothing moved. They're the ones who collapsed. Uh, but it also has exposed the fact that these viruses become far more fatal because of a food system that's designed for profits rather than health. Food is supposed to be health. You know, As, uh, uh, food is medicine, annam sarva oshidi. And yet most of the chronic diseases of our times are food induced. The cancers, the neurological diseases, just add the list. And the research is there so clearly that uh, while the um, the risks of fertility and mortality is about 1%, with just an infection, it jumps to 9.2% with diabetes, with air pollution. Look at what's happening in New York. And most of the people who died in the city of Bhopal were people who had been impacted by the gas leak of 1984, an event combined with the Punjab violence that put me on this path of looking for an ecological agriculture. Um, I think what it has also uh, shown the cracks in is a very manipulated science. By now, we should have known this is the virus. This is how it came. Yeah? Here are the solutions. If we start to map the many stories, nothing makes sense because geopolitics has become more powerful right now in dealing with this virus than science. Another crack that has opened up is, of course, the crack of inequality. We all, we were very unequal societies. This inequality had been polarized. I always call globalization a stern gerlach experiment, just ruptured society. And now with lockdown, half of humanity has been rendered useless. According to ILO, 1.9. In India, half of the people who was keeping the cities afloat 
are now being called migrant labor. You are not a migrant in your own country. A new vocabulary of being outsiders being created. Very wrong. They're all citizens. And they've been treated like throwaway people. The other day, one of these people on the road said, we are being treated like abandoned dogs on a street. That is not how nations are supposed to behave. Uh, and we were talking earlier about your in-laws, uh, David. I was just before the lockdown in uh, Italy. And they were already talking about, we have to make a decision between who live and who live not. So the have and have not divide is mutating into a live and live not divide. And for me, that's genocide. And we have to avoid it. Those are the conversations we must have. Finally, you know, India is a land of untouchability. We made it illegal in our constitution, but in a very strange way because of the heavy overkill of the unscientific aspects of this virus, everyone is treating everyone else as untouchable. The doctors, the nurses, the relatives, people are going burying their own relatives. So it's a vicious untouchability that has been created. And that's why that, you know, the, the manipulated science that has been the part of big pharma and big ag and that David, you and I have fought against so hard. I think it is time to both liberate Mother Earth and liberate science and liberate knowledge so we can live in ways that it makes peace with the earth and makes us healthy. One planet, one health is an is an interconnection we can't avoid. Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> well put. I think, you know, the, the thing is that we've known this was coming. We've known this was coming. That's why every year the CDC is very carefully watching what's going to happen, expecting something like the Spanish flu to come. And, and every year, you know, they're, they have the uh, vaccinations for flu, but, these are all guesses. We've known something was coming. We've lucked out with Ebola, with SARS, with MERS. Somehow we've been able to contain that. Um, and even with HIV, you know, I always think that if HIV had been airborne, man, that would have been it for our species because it has a long latent period when it doesn't express itself. It's passed on through, through sex and blood exchange, uh, that would have been uh, deadly. So we lucked out on that. But as you say, 60 to 70% of the d- diseases, new ones coming out, come from animals. And as we press nature closer and closer, as we clear cut and burn and, and dam, we're pushing species together that normally don't occupy the same area. And viruses can jump from one to another and generate uh, spe- uh, viruses that, will ultimately be devastating for humans. So we've known it was coming, and yet we are so unprepared for this. And, you know, I now we're occupied with this particular event, but anything six months ago seems like ancient history we've forgotten. So, but I would like to remember some of the ancient history, because in, in uh, October of 2018, that seems like ancient history. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a special report telling us that if we don't keep temperature from rising by uh, more than uh, less than 1.5 degrees since pre-industrial times by the by 2100, this will be absolute climate chaos and catastrophe and called for a 45 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 and 100 percent by 
2050. So there was the call. We knew we had to get off fossil fuels and very, very quickly. I've always taken pride in the fact that human beings are special because we had have something that no other animals have in the way that we do. And that's called foresight. Based on what we learn in our experiences, we look ahead and we see where the dangers lie and where opportunities are. And then we choose a path to get us uh, to avoid dangers and exploit opportunity. And so it's, it's a, um, an amazing thing that when it comes to something like climate, we are simply incapable of responding uh, to the depth that we, we have to. Climate change, the conditions leading to the ca- catastrophe continue on. Even with this meltdown and, and lockdown, we've, a uh, reduction of greenhouse gases is still only 17%. Uh, which is a huge sh- shift, but it's a long way from the 50% that we need by 2030. We, uh, one day after the IPCC report came out in October of 2015, 2018, marijuana became legal in Canada. And in Canada, all discussion about climate change disappeared from the media. In May of 2019, we got a terrifying report from the United Nations that we are in an extinction crisis. We have already extinguished millions of species and a million more plants and animals are in danger of going extinct very, very quickly. This is a terrifying report, to me at least. The day after the report came out, Prince Harry and Meghan had a baby and all discussion about a biodiversity crisis disappeared. What kind of a species are we that we get these warnings? We get the scientists telling us that that there are opportunities to avoid catastrophe. And yet we are, we're not paying any attention. It's been absolutely devastating to me. Vandana, you and I have spent our entire adult careers trying to tell people that there are huge opportunities with shifting direction. But if we don't, the possibilities are catastrophic. What kind of a species are we? Foresight, acting on foresight, has been the very survival mechanism of our species. And now we're ignoring it. And, you know, it's obvious that what the issue is, that we now have come to believe that the economy is the source of everything that matters. And this shift I mean, for most of human existence, we realized that we are embedded in a web of relationships, relationships with other species of animals and plants, with the air, the water, the sun, the soil. We understood that that complex web of relationships was a very key to our survival and our well-being. And pocket, that's called an ecocentric way of seeing our place in the world. And there are pockets of people that still cling to that ecocentric worldview. Indigenous people around the world are fighting. They're fighting not for a share of the global economy. They're fighting for the land of which they are a part. And their responsibility is to protect the very source of their health and the world, their well-being. But we've shifted with the scientific uh, innovations, with the industrial revolution, and uh, with the move of people from village, agricultural village communities to big cities, 
we've come to think, you know, most in 85% of Canadians live in cities. In a city, we think, well, uh, the most important thing is my job. I need a job to earn the money to buy the things that I want. And so the economy assumes this position. And for nine and a half years in Canada, we had a prime minister who said, we can't do anything about climate change. That's crazy economics. Reducing greenhouse gases will destroy the economy. And so the he elevated the economy above the very atmosphere that gives us air to breathe, that gives us weather, climate, and the seasons. And so we've come to assume that everything in the world is about us that we're the center of the action and everything out there is an opportunity. Oh yeah, these environmentalists tell us we have to be a little more careful, but it's all about us. And in the the world that we've now uh, adopted, there's no reciprocity in receiving. There's no sense of obligation or responsibility. I've been fortunate, privileged to work with indigenous people now for over 40 years and it's so striking that when you go to a feast or a memorial or uh, some kind of celebration, in their songs and their prayers and their dances, they're always thanking their creator for nature's abundance and generosity. And they always acknowledge they have a responsibility to act in the proper way to ensure that nature will continue to be as abundant and generous. As it is. There is no sense of reciprocity in the economic system that we've built. Do you think corporations give a damn about the consequences of what they're doing on the rest of the world? No, it's all about making money. And the loss of that reciprocity, the loss of the understanding that we are part of this web of relationships has created uh, the dilemma that we have today. Absolutely. And um, so you know, we've been fighting for all these years to try to get people to see their place in the world in a different mm-hmm. way. And it hasn't worked. The feed. And so, you know, while I say things that don't matter as much as the things that you say, they'll, they'll fix that lag, uh, that lag and, um, and get, get us back on speed. But in fact, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you kind of uh, addressed the next question I was going to talk about, which is climate change and the fact that both of you have been, warning us about the fact that we're driving our vehicles straight for a cliff and now that cliff is is very much in sight um and here we are looking at at the chasm um but um you know you you brought up um, an important point which is the economy and i think every government around the world now is talking about restarting the economy. And as we take the keys to this um, engine of this vehicle, um, I, I want to ask what kind of vehicle are we starting back up? And what do you both think we ought to be watchful for? What do we have to be careful about when we return to normalcy? You know, I think one of the things that uh, I have witnessed get very genetically manipulated is our concepts, our words, our vocabulary. After all, economy is derived from the same word oikos, from which ecology is derived. And managing the household is what all indigenous cultures have done, what women did. And then they had to do the witch hunts to drive women out of managing the households. If you look at the literature on the witch hunts, in early modern Europe, 
It's all about that expertise that was in harmony with the earth. And when I wrote my first book, Staying Alive, uh, because my publishers heard me give my talk in 1975, uh, in, uh, or 1985 at the, at the uh, Nairobi Women's Summit, uh, I went into the roots of how did we divide ourselves and separate ecology and economy, separate humans from nature, uh, create hierarchies between men and women, treat indigenous people as barbarians and uncivilized. And uh, it, it, it didn't evolve. It was imposed. After all, the chancellor of England became the father of a new modern science and wrote a book, The Birth of Masculine Science. Yeah, The Masculine Birth of Time, he called it. That separation is masculinity. Domination is masculinity. Enclosing the commons, becoming property, lock, controlling people and not letting them self-organize as all indigenous cultures do, then became politics. So none of this. I think we should have a bonfire of these people who created such a mess. But more importantly, since neoliberalism, making money became the religion of our times. You know, it was deregulated commerce. Everything that our cultures have said was morally unacceptable. And I went back, I'm writing a dictionary on the economy. Aristotle talked about economy, economy and the art of living. We've always done that. And he called crematistics the art of money making. And I think we must distinguish this because in the period by millions, like I said, half of India, 40 million in uh, in the United States. Everywhere, people just lost their livelihoods, which is part of economy as a living. In that short period, now, in this one and a half months, the super rich made 434 billion additional. That's crematistics. Jeff Bezos, who's trying to destroy every little shop, he destroyed the publishers, now trying to destroy every little shop of India. They're trying to make it look like if you buy fresh vegetables, it's dangerous for your health. Our food safety authority says you must go via Amazon with its heavy, heavy footprint. Jeff Bezos became richer 24 billion during this short one month of lockdown. And BlackRock, which holds all the money of the billionaires, and then gambles with this money to say, where can we make the quickest money? Burn the Amazon for GM soya. BlackRock, $23 trillion assets. So crematistics has grown, but economia has shrunk. And we need to grow the economy in alignment with the earth according to the rules that indigenous cultures evolved with so much discipline, with so much sanctity. And crematistics must be rendered a crime, and that's where our new democratic energy will have to go. You know, my mother and father married during the Great Depression of the 1930s. And life was really, really difficult those days. And because of that, their whole outlook on life and values were shaped by the Depression, and those are the things they banged into my head. And they kept saying over and over, live within your means, save some for tomorrow, share, don't be greedy, help your neighbors, you always need their help. And you have to work hard for money to buy the necessities in life. But you don't run after money as if having fancy clothes and a big car and a huge house 
makes you a better, more important person. Those are values that were pounded into my head as a result of the experience of living in the Great Depression. And what they felt they, that got them through were family and re- friends and their community. Those are the things uh, that that allowed them to get through. And it's 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 uh, to me we've created a, a an economy that is now uh, based on consumption, and that was a deliberate thing that came out of World War II. After World War II, uh, you know, as the war was coming to an end, the president recognized that uh, you can't keep pumping out guns and tanks and bombs and planes in peacetime. So he said, how do you transform a wartime economy into a peacetime economy? And the answer was consumption. Get people to worship at the altar of consumption, buy stuff, throw it away, and buy more stuff. And that's the the crisis that we're in now. You know, John Maynard Keynes said way back in the 30s, there are many things that should be global or international, art, sports, uh, music. But for heaven's sake, keep your economy as domestic as possible. And I remember when Brian Mulroney was Prime Minister of of Canada in the late 1980s, and he was on a program called Larry King Live, and he was talking about what a great job, uh, uh, Brian was talking about what a great job he was doing, and and King said, well, I I think your economy isn't as as strong as uh, you're claiming it's supposed to be, and he said, and Mulroney's answer was, oh, but that's a global economy. I don't have any control over that. Don't blame me for that. Then if he gets elected prime minister of Canada, why do they, does he rush in to get free trade and, and to get involved in a global economy? If in doing that, you lose control over the, the whole thing. I met, uh, during the late eighties when Canada was debating whether to have free trade with the United States. And one of the eminent economists in Canada was saying, if we don't have free trade with them, with America, Canada will be an economic basket case. And I thought, what the hell's going on? So I met an eminent economist in the United States named Kenneth Boulding. And I said, Kenneth, we're in danger now of becoming a, an economic basket case without free trade. And he said, if you want to understand how wealthy your country is, Just try this thought exercise. Imagine you go to bed tonight, you wake up tomorrow, and the world has disappeared except for your country and 200 miles of ocean. Would you starve? Canada is one of the breadbaskets of the world. Would you lack for minerals or natural resources? Canada is gifted by by far beyond any other countries uh, in the world. Would you lack for an educated public to make Virtually anything that you want, by any criterion you want to apply that way. Canada is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And yet globalization makes us an imminent basket case. This doesn't make any sense to me at all. And so it seems to me that we've got to start thinking hard. You know, we, although we gather food from the sea, uh, we, we still have to buy uh, things at the, the store on this island. And I buy tomatoes and lettuce and coffee and tea. And I know that none of that is being grown in Canada. We have a food chain in Canada that's six to 7,000 miles long. All of that fed by fossil fuels. This can't go on, it seems to me. So we've got to rethink our whole relationship 
with the planet and this elevation of the economy as the source of everything uh, that matters. This is simply a suicidal path, it seems to me. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's harrowing. And, and I and I think, you know, what, what was also quite scary for me in some of the recent talks and writing you've been doing, Vandanaji, is that you point to another estate that's in danger. You you look at uh, tech billionaires, and you know, um, I think in in a recent interview, which has now seen a few million views, you compared uh, Bill Gates to Christopher Columbus, which, uh, knowing you, I think is not a favorable comparison. <laughs> and um, what what did you mean by that? Well, I think those interviews were when my my book, uh, Oneness Versus the One Percent, was being released in uh, France. And I wrote the book because 2015 at the climate summit in uh, Paris, Gates was walking around basically instructing the heads of state. And I said, something changed. Something has changed that heads of state are now errand boys for billionaires. Of course, having worked on globalization with the IFG, uh, worked on my national systems, I, you know, I kept watch that the first meeting of WTO deregulated trade in information and software. That is where Microsoft made so much money. And the relocation of software to India saved these tech companies 40 billion a year. That's why it's not an accident. There's so many Indians in software. Now, every tech giant is headed by an Indian. I know they're bright, but I think it's also to get the big Indian market. Why do I call Bill Gates um, a Columbus? What was Columbus's role? He thought he was coming to India. That's why he made the mistake of calling all the diversity of indigenous First Nations Indians. And I say Columbus's blunder united us. But basically his instruction from the Pope through the king and queen was go conquer lands. And civilize the barbarians, create colonies. Well, Bill Gates is creating colonies. My book was because I saw he was creating not just recolonizing Africa through the failed green revolution on which I wrote my book, The Violence of the Green Revolution. We know it has devastated the earth, the soil, the state of Punjab, so prosperous, now ruined every third you know, 75% of the youth of Punjab, drug addicts. If I were to take the opiate crisis and the addiction crisis and the way people have had to deal with the multiple crisis created by an absolutely anti-nature, anti-people economy. But Gates is then pushing the new GMOs, which have been totally shed aside uh, because of their side effects. One Editing of a gene leads to 1,500 changes. But he wants gene editing. He wants gene drives. Pushing pieces, species to extinction with consciousness. At Paris, he, you know, geoengineering was a big solution. Well, if we've messed up the climate because of greenhouse gas emissions and emissions from industrial agriculture, which as my book, Soil Not Oil, shows is 50% of all the greenhouse gases, the food system is 50% of the problem. And a good agriculture system could be 100% of the solution. But Bill Gates is talking of geoengineering, manipulating the entire planet's climate, uh, which to me is a crime. It's a crime against the earth. It is an ecocide. Um, digital genomic mapping, you know, we've just had 
another cyclone in the Bay of Bengal. It's not that we didn't have this cyclones, but they have increased in velocity and increased in intensity and increased in frequency, beginning with the super cyclone of 1999. Because I had been saving seeds through Navdanya, we had soil tolerant and flood tolerant seeds, which we could distribute, multiply, distribute. After every cyclone, agriculture has to bounce back. These seeds are distributed. Bill Gates struts around saying he, he has helped invent a sub-gene of flood tolerance. All you do is steal it. I call him a new pirate. That's piracy as part of colonialism. But I think, why, you know, while we look at the past economy and what was wrong with it, I do think each of us needs to be thinking of the future economy these tech giants and the new Columbuses want to create. There's some things that need to be done during a pandemic. Distancing. I, I prefer to use physical distancing and not allow the term social distancing to become the pattern because separating society is not the objective, just physical distancing. Yeah, okay, for a while, don't let the kids go to school. But why are you then creating systems where children will never go to school and you give money to Como, the New York governor, who says, oh, why are we spending money on these buildings? So they're now turning the temporary measures of management of the corona epidemic into permanent measures for creating a new empire based on digitalization. I've just written my new piece for World Biodiversity Day because I believe we are part of the earth. We are animals. We are living. We are biology. Our species being is shared with other species beings. For 500 years of colonialism made us forget we are part of the earth. Industrialism made us forget we are part of the earth. And now the new forced digitalization, chosen digitalization is different. Forced digitalization, new patents, uh, patent, world patent for Microsoft's 060606. To mine our data, our bodily activity, Turn us into users of their gadgets. We are users, no more human beings, no more sovereign. And then evaluate us of what we are worth and allocate cryptocurrency to us. Google talking about implants to ensure we are permanently in a surveillance system. And there's a brilliant economist of Harvard who's written a book, Surveillance Capitalism. So we are in such a strange situation now. If fossil fuels did harm, the idea of big data as the new oil is creating a new problem. Globalization gave us the corporate state where money ran our governments. This new economy that the billionaires, the tech billionaires are trying to create is basically a surveillance corporate state, which means an end to freedom. But it also means a further distancing from the earth, a further pretense that we are dematerializing. I've had debates with Gates and his representatives. We are dematerializing the world. I say, you steal a seed, you still steal a seed. You might make a genome map, but the genome map is still for a pattern to control the real seed that gives us real food. Dematerialization, every cryptocurrency transaction takes as much energy as a Canadian household for an entire month. We are talking about more invisible, heavier ecological footprint, but worse, a loss of our humanity. And I think everywhere, every community should be saying, what was wrong in the past economy? What do we have to do now to make sure this pandemic is controlled? And what 
are the future economies we will build that work for the earth, are in service of the earth, are in service of community, and we don't become two classes of people. A large number of throwaway people, they talk the language of useless people. And I don't think it's an accident that such large numbers of workers in India have just been trashed. They want 10% as their digital slaves, 90% throwaway people. That is unacceptable for me as one humanity on a shared planet. Thank you. Um, I, and I, I really feel that message and I want to come back to something that David touched upon as well, which is, I think both of you argue for deglobalization and the building of smaller communities. At the same time, you both think and have impact and are speaking of a, of a global fellowship. So what's the kind of globalization you'd both like to see? We communicate with the speed of light. Um, you know, I started, I did my first television series in 1962. And I saw at that time how poorly Canadians understood or appreciated the impact science was having on their lives. And I felt it wasn't right to just leave decisions on the application of science to industry and uh, politicians. I could see the application by the military, by industry and, and medicine. And I felt the public had to be, uh, to learn from this. And I wanted to provide better and better information. Now, even back then in the sixties, we, the 1960s, we called uh, television the boob tube, you know, and I knew that television programs, it was like a cesspool, but I thought my programs would glisten like jewels among all of the things in, in the cesspool and they would savor it and learn from it. But what I found is when you jump into a sex cesspool, you look like a turd like everybody else. People <laughs> use it. And, and look at what's happened now. We have access now in a little cell phone. You've got access to this vast amount of information uh, that people have around. Uh, like we can get to the Library of Congress in the United States and all of the stuff in there. We've got huge access to information. Most of it is about selling stuff or pornography. And uh, what I find now is people don't use information the way I thought. What they do now is they turn through the media, the Internet till they find a, a website that says exactly what they already believe. You want to believe global warming is a hoax? There are dozens of websites that will tell you that. You want to believe in the crazy ideas, you know, UFOs came to Earth and bred with human beings? There are websites about that. I mean, there are people that still absolutely cling to the belief that the Earth is flat. And so... The, the problem with this spewing of information, which we share at the speed of light, is that we can have, we can have meetings like this. But the fact is that that's not how people are, are educating themselves. They're simply confirming their own prejudices and prejudgments and, and they can cite, uh, oh, well, I had a website here that said, uh, uh global warming is, uh, is baloney, you know, the climate's always changed, uh, nothing different. Um, uh, so I don't know. I mean, I think we still have to be globally, uh, uh, plugged in, I guess, to gain information, but we have to really focus on local communities becoming much more self-sustaining and uh, self-sufficient, I think. 
you know, I, I see globalization as the process that started with Columbus and the East India Company. And it isn't that international trade wasn't taking place before that. After all, the reason why both Columbus and East India Company needed to leave Europe was because India was 25% of the world economy with our amazing spices, with our amazing textiles. And they wanted to control that trade. A bag of pepper used to exchange for its weight for a bag of gold. And they wanted the pepper and the gold um, and not have to give the gold here. So trade, international trade is not globalization. Forced trade is globalization where you destroy the local economy. And in these 30 years of neoliberal corporate driven globalization, I have watched so much get destroyed and standards are fixed. You know, I've, you know, my life has gone protecting the seed because they tried to have intellectual property in the WTO. And we said, no, you don't invent the seed. Dumping with subsidized grain, wiping out farmers, making it illegal for us to make our own cold pressed virgin mustard oil made illegal in 98. Five million cold pressed mills were criminalized. And I had to do a subject at that time. Um, for me, the, I think the corona pandemic and lockdown has shown us that deglobalization can happen and it has happened. And let's just make this permanent, not the surveillance part. You know, here is the part we should choose to say deglobalization is worth maintaining. Surveillance is worth shedding. Uh, for me, our relationship internationally is as planetary citizens in a planetary civilization. And that means you don't have to move goods around. You have to move ideas around, as you do in the Indian Summer Festival. You have to connect through consciousness, not through container. You know, the domination of the big, giant container trucks and container ships is so obscene to me because I've grown up in a world without them. And as I see take over more and more and more, and I watched these giant ships with these giant containers, I said, why are we destroying local economy by fabricated rules written by the corporations to make their market grow? And it is not the case that these goods stopped moving just because you became digital. After all, more footprint is happening because of the e-commerce of Amazon. If I go to my local vegetable vendor, my ecological footprint is very low and a livelihood is created in the process. A relationship is created in the process. But these giant packages, the exploitation of the workers, of the delivery system, the warehouse workers, why is Amazon having strikes? It's because it is still dealing with people. It's still dealing with goods, except that it's monopolizing by not paying taxes and getting privileges of every kind during the lockdown. Every government was used by Jeff Bezos to make it possible for them to deliver while local shops were shut down. I think local economies is the only way we can reduce our ecological footprint, increase what I call our head, hand, and footprint. That is the way economies sustain themselves over millions. I'm just going over another brilliant book. We in India, through the Chipko movement, we used to call ecology the economy of permanence. That's why instead of saying economy is bad, let's take it back. It's meant to be about ecology. And this book was Gandhi's colleague, Kumarapa, The Economy of Permanence. 
we can only create economies of permanence locally, shift from fossil fuels to craft-based systems, because fossil fuels mean industrialism. Our love affair with industrialization must end. And for my dear friends in the environmental community of the West who use the word civilization, shed it. As Gandhi said, it might be a good idea, but industrial civilization cannot be civilized because it has to predate on so much of the planet, as he said, if one little island nation has kept the whole world in chains. What will happen if everyone industrializes? How many planets will we need? It is already happening, the overshoot of needing 5, 10, 11 planets that we don't have. This is the only planet we have. So we've got to reduce our ecological footprint and we have to de-industrialize, we have to de-globalize, de-industrialize, de-mechanize. The mechanical mind is such a mischief maker. You know, our work David, on genetic engineering, where you take complex systems and reduce them to an assumption of a particle that's not related to anything else, and you can move it like a Lego said. We have to deconsumerize. Our citizenship comes from serving the earth, caring for the earth, caring from community. Our citizenship is in fact lost when we blindly consume without knowing what it's costing the earth and other people. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I find it amazing that Bezos and, and uh, all of these people are worshipped, are celebrated, are admired in our society. It's an obscenity that anyone could be worth a billion dollars. We used to think millionaires were really something. They're not talking about the first trillionaire that is, is, uh, is coming. You know, I, I'm very struck on the coast of British Columbia, the coastal First Nations, the indigenous people, have uh, an event called uh, a potlatch. And when Europeans arrived here, they said, look at these savages. They don't have any sense of ownership and property because you have to earn the right to throw a potlatch. And in the potlatch, you give away everything you possess because you get in return status within the community you get to carve a ring around the top of your totem pole and if you have three rings there boy you are one of the most admired people here it all seems to be how rich can you be but you can't build bigger and bigger houses and bigger buy bigger planes and bigger boats like what the hell do they need we need a mechanism to limit the amount of wealth you have, which is way beyond what what is is uh, necessary, and to provide, okay, we'll give the, uh, we'll give them status, we'll give them recognition, but for heaven's sake, let's shift that around. It's inequity, the terrible inequity now that that is uh, uh, driving the destruction of this uh, system that we have. We've got to sit down and ask, what the hell is an economy for? How much is enough? Are there no limits? Are we happier with all this stuff that's coming out? My great fear is that coming out of this crisis, we're going to have our leaders just trying everything they can to get things back up going the way they were before the crisis. That's what we did in 2008, 2009, when we had the economic meltdown and Bush and and Obama poured tens of billions of dollars into the banks that had created the crisis in the first place. Not one of them has gone to jail and all these, and there were no strings attached to the money being given. We, they said, just please get back up going again. Too many, uh, corporations have been put out of business. Please 
get back up. And they, and it worked. The stock market rose and everything went back. And my fear, if you look to the United States, is that's the whole drive is to get that economy going again without learning a damn thing about this crisis from this crisis. And that will be a tragedy if we don't learn some fundamental lessons. Thank you both uh, for that. And in fact, I'm, um, I think a lot of people, we have five continents and 17 countries watching right now. And, and there's a lot of people wanting your guidance. In fact, uh, on being watchful and, and what they can do, um, calls to action really in this moment. Um, Siddharth and Manisha from the Adavi Trust in India write to ask, do you think the virus has made an unintended but robust argument for local food democracies? And they're joined by Sarah Kim asking on Facebook, uh, those of us who work in community food security, what can we do to advocate right now while people are paying attention? Do you have any advice for what can be advocated? Well, you know, I, I think, yes, it is an important moment to show that food comes from the earth, nourishes our bodies, and is the currency of life. You know, the currency basically means that which flows. That which makes life flow is life. The nutrient cycle is the currency of that life. That's why we talk about food as what makes the web of life. And that consciousness means we have to be connected. We have to take care. And, you know, over these 35 years, I've spent a lot of time redefining indicators from yield to nutrition per acre, from uh, externalities to true cost accounting. And now I'm working on an economy of care. How small local farm economies and food systems are based on the economy and what circulates is these are the systems that sustained people also gave health therefore gave immunity they are what make our gut microbiome work they are the systems that ensure that we are able to remember that we are part of the earth but exactly at this time as I said while the digital barons are trying to fragment our species being all over again by turning us into the new colony and the new mine to now mine our data Silicon Valley and the big tech is also looking at saying, oh, my God, we could make money out of food. You know, we left it. Let's grab it. So, of course, besides the fact that Bayern and Monsanto have merged and the more highest investments in all corporations. When I started working with IFG, corporations used to be corporations. Now corporations are owned by the billionaires who have the asset management funds, who then decide what the corporations will do. And, of course, they drive to higher profits. Uh, what's basically happening is there now, Silicon Valley is a big investor in a future of fake food. Yeah? So buyer will make, continue to grow GM soil, farming without farmers, food without farms, and uh, basically, in effect, farms will become factories for producing raw material, carbohydrates, protein, that then are genetically engineered in labs to create the impossible burgers of the world. And the man, I think Pat Brown is his name, says, well, when you come across an unimproved technology and technological improvement is a permanent growth feature, well, real food is not an imperfect technology. Real food is the most perfect technology 
evolved by thousands of years of knowledge of what is good food to grow, what's good food to eat, in which climate. So I think all local groups must watch where that industrial system and that money-making chromatistics mindset is going to move and having experience from the days of the Green Revolution to the days of genetic engineering, uh, to the banning of edible oils, this system cannot work through freedom. You see, every culture has been able to choose technologies, tools, currencies. This system of money at any cost must force. Therefore, they write the laws to make our independence and freedom illegal. They've tried it again and again with the food system, and I've had to rise again. They tried to make it illegal for us to save seeds. I said, no, it's our duty to save seeds. We will do a seed sakhegre. British tried to make it illegal for us to make salt. They will try to make local food and agriculture illegal. That's why we'd better be ready with our sakhegre and our fight for truth, for real food, for real life, for real health, for real freedom. And this is where the local food movement will be the basically hub through which communities come together to grow local economies. There's a, there's a question uh, that links to that, I think, which is really to say coming together and, you know, Laura Rios is writing in saying leaders in Latin America are using COVID measures to increase deforestation, you know, um, set rules that increases deforestation in the Amazon. What can civil society do, especially that we can't gather in quite that same way? Um, David and Manana, could you care to comment? Well, we seem to have uh, very quickly forgotten there was a 17-year-old girl who was uh, making the call that galvanized us uh, around the world. I mean, in, in Canada last September, uh, 500,000 people marched behind Greta in uh, in Montreal and her message was simple you know listen to what the scientists are saying and take it seriously and I yeah I think it's really important something that hasn't been mentioned Vandana is a trained is a physicist I'm a geneticist we're scientists by training and it seems almost traitorous to say look science isn't the way science is very good at description telling us the state of the planet but don't think that science is what's going to lead us uh, to the to the next world to the to the kind of world that uh, Vandana was uh, uh, postulating. Uh, science is a very powerful way of knowing, but it's simply too restricted to be able to extrapolate to uh, the bigger the context within which it's actually applied. And I'm uh, very very worried. I, I agree with geoengineering is now being pushed because. The fossil fuel industry has been very, very, uh, and reluctant to do anything about reducing emissions through the burning of their fuels. And they're pushing it to a point now where the time is so short to do something meaningful that we're going to be left with genetic, uh, geoengineering. We've got to take over the entire atmosphere of the planet and try to engineer how much sunlight actually gets through, uh, to hit the earth. And, you know, we, we won't have learned a damn thing that we don't know enough to see what the consequences of this uh, application will be. And certainly in, in genetics, uh, you know, I'm, I've been 
characterized as a, a total traitor to the discipline because they say, hey, wait a minute. You know, I, I once chaired a meeting in, uh, in Oklahoma and uh, Jim Watson was the, uh, the major presenter at this thing. And I said to him at the end of his talk, well, what is the responsibility of geneticists on the social implications of genetic engineering? And he, and he immediately attacked me and, and said, I know what people like you want. You want everybody to be the same. You want, uh, <laughs> um, I was just blown away. You know, this is Jim Watson, one of our, our gods. And I didn't want to engage in a really strong argument. And it was old. And then he left after this whole uh, session. And I said in a later session, the idea, anyway, I won't go into it, but it, it was a very frightening thing that the, this eminent geneticist saw the world in such a restricted way that he wasn't even willing to consider the, the, uh, philosophical and moral implications of what he was doing. And I think, uh, this is a problem now that people like Bill Gates and Bezos, they're all enthralled with technology and they, they just think this is the way into the future. And, um, well, we're, we're having a meeting called Reconciling Ways of Knowing, uh, Science and Traditional Indigenous Knowledge. We've got to put these two together in some way, it seems to me. I'm going to have to leave shortly. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I'm coming to the last, uh, question yeah. of the evening. Sirish. Yeah. Sirish, is it possible to get the questions that are coming in? I would love to see the questions. Can you send them to us? Uh, can, is someone able to send questions in? No, the, all of the questions that come in. All right. Is, is someone able to move our Facebook and YouTube streams into the Zoom channel, please, for uh, David and Vandana to see? Well, I don't mean now. No, I, I, I mean, oh, now. later. <laughs> I think David's launching for later. Oh, later. Yes, uh, absolutely. We'll, um, we'll, we'll get them to you. I think it, I think there's, there's many and I'm just trying to group them together by, by theme, in fact. And I think really what people want to know right now are what paths do you both see to, to liberation and equality? Like what, what's your, what's your vision for that? <laughs> small one, small question to end with. Well, I think we have to carry on with Greta's uh, message. When I met Greta the first time, the first thing I said to her was, I am so sorry. This is not what you should be doing. But we, you know, the past generations, we've been partying as if there was no tomorrow without thinking about what we were leaving for them. And I think that every parent has got to now act as a warrior on behalf of their children and listen to what children are saying. Children are worried about whether they even have a a future uh, coming at us. That's what has motivated Greta. And I think it's time that parents got up there and began uh, a movement. The problem, you know, right now, Canada has embraced the idea of we're going to have net zero emissions of uh, greenhouse gases by 2050. Oh, politicians love that. That's not a commitment at all. Not one politician in office today is still going to be office in 2050. So there's no accountability. So they love to have these long-term commitments and say, oh, yeah, by 2050, we'll be completely off fossil fuels. Baloney. We've got to have commitments now that are made from year to year. And it seems to me that the way you do that is 
that that parents have got to be marching on the streets and demanding the people we elect do things for the sake of their uh, our children and grandchildren. Um, you know, I, I would like to add that um, you know this net zero language is again one more of these very confused languages because just like the emissions trading allowed the polluters to continue to pollute and buy credits from um, those who weren't polluting and this was called emissions trading and it failed it actually increased the emissions in that decade of uh, uh, of Kyoto um, the the protocol what we are basically seeing now is this new language of okay yeah we'll be net zero because we will take over the economies of other countries and we will make carbon offsets so it'll be a net zero biodiversity day which was just yesterday or day before uh unfortunately they're now talking of biodiversity offsets you burn the amazon and then you plant eucalyptus genetically engineered eucalyptus for the pulp mill that is not you cannot offset the web of life you can only protect it you can work with it you can defend it so in terms of liberation i think you know we're facing a 500 year build up of a crisis of colonizing of defining the earth as t- as land to be conquered as property as territory uh defining in people of the earth indigenous communities as barbarians that a civilizing mission must wipe out and i often talk that the bill gates and the bezos and all are out on a new civilizing mission and their civilizing mission is like the old one that too was about commerce that too was about money that too was about profits that too was about grabbing wealth this too is that same primitive accumulation ugly crude violent that same system created the problem of race we were always diverse colors never a problem <laughs> david is different from sirish and me and of the hundreds of people thousands of people who are listening all of us are a different color color was never a problem it was part of our diversity color was made a problem through racism being women and men was not a problem capitalist patriarchy turned us into second sex passive property objects to be manipulated so how what's the liberation i think the liberation is realizing that we are just different members of a very rich earth community and our diversity doesn't make for inequality and hierarchy our diversity makes for richness it makes for the giving it makes for constantly finding where you can give and out of that comes the wealth so the other day was world bee day and i wrote a piece how the bee creates an abundance through giving come she pollinates you have the next generation of crops you have pollination you have new life and you have honey no one gets poorer everyone comes away with more abundance the economy of life is the culture of life is the democracy of life and uh, i call it a democracy that's how we'll solve all the problems of inequality between humans and non-humans get rid of anthropocentrism but also all of the parallel inequalities created within the human community it has generated too much violence we don't need it 
I think the world is ready to rise as one humanity on one planet. And our bonds are as planetary citizens as Earth citizens. Thank you so much. I mean, both of you uh, for being so generous. And of course, what marks you both out is your ability to communicate so powerfully and so beautifully. So really, thank you both. Um, in a couple of weeks, we'll be speaking to uh, Joseph Stiglitz um, on how we might emerge into a more caring economy. So a lot of what you said, we will take forward into into that discussion uh, coming up. Um, sadly, I think this is all we have time for tonight, but I'd like to be hopeful for what Vandana Shiva calls the resurgence of real knowledge, of real intelligence, real work and real well-being. And I hope we can take heed of David Suzuki's words, in this disaster lies an opportunity to reflect and change direction in the hope that if we do, nature will be far more generous than we deserve. So again, my, my warm thanks to you both for, for being here tonight. Vandana, next time you're in Vancouver, please come and see us. I will for sure. Let's see where... They are where what they'll allow and what they won't. But I am ready for my satyagraha for when the epidemiologists say it's safe. And then they continue to say, no, you can't move around without surveillance systems. That's the day I'm going to do my next satyagraha. We will be free. <laughs> Thanks, Irish. Thank you both so Thank much. You, bye Thank bye. you, David. Thank you, Vandana. Take good care. Everyone, thank you for being a wonderful audience and sending those questions in. We will send those to David and Wandana as promised. I'd like you to join us uh, next Saturday where you get to meet uh, a group of incredible poets from around the world who offer, uh, offer us language as shelter in these times. And then um, on June 6th, as I said, a uh, discussion on how we build a kinder economic future on the other side of this pandemic with the Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stieglitz. And again, I'd urge you to follow and support the work of Nadanya and David Suzuki Foundation. And if you valued this event and you're in a position to show your support through a, a donation, however small that might be, that would be really appreciated. Uh, take care, everyone. Uh, be well, and be safe, and good night. <laughs>